Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S for additional data and content you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Let's start. I just want to reprise last week for people who might not have been on. There is an Exhibit A in the 10-page memo. I was hoping, I see some numbers that I find need to be sharpened up, especially the GNP number. And I just wasn't able to get to it last weekend, but uh, I'll work on it this weekend. It's very much in the news yesterday, today, and probably through the weekend because the Biden administration is putting out a budget and they're saying that they can have the Medicare expense be less than the CBO is predicting. The CBO is predicting in 23, the Medicare will be a trillion dollars and they hope to do that by being stricter on drug purchasing they also say that the payroll tax which interestingly enough for 23 raises a lot of money it's a trillion six for all the payroll taxes and they want to put an additional i think one percent or one and a half percent on amounts over four hundred thousand which would go into the Medicare fund. But they're just they're just putting this up. And I think the House Republicans are gonna finally come up with their plan. Now, um, for those who weren't on the phone last week, and I think myself and Mike and Jason were all surprised by this, but it, from a capital markets point of view, what I was worried about is some kind of a problem not necessarily with the debt ceiling, but just the weight of government securities on the capital markets, because on the CPO estimates, the amount of borrowing is, is over a trillion dollars a year. Actually, for next year, it's a trillion four. And remember, we have QT going on. So the Fed balance sheet is coming down by about a, a trillion to a year. It's about a hundred billion a month. So that's two and a half billion of of supply that has to be taken up by the capital markets. But having done this, I think it's more likely that we muddle through rather than have a capital markets event. They're kind of stuck with Social Security. I mean, the government spends over $6 trillion a year, and it takes in just around $5 trillion. So they're stuck with Social Security, which is a trillion three. And Medicare and Medicaid, whatnot, and defense. When you get down to things away from defense and interest, and of course the interest is going up because the interest rate is going up and there's more debt, they have about a trillion four that they have to work out budgets for. Um, I think the most you reasonably expect is maybe they can save a hundred billion or something and a trillion four. That trillion four. 23-24 relates to around 900 billion pre-COVID in 2019. So you would hope there'd be some savings there. But as I as I 
look at this and can ask Mike and Jason to <laughs> see whether they think I'm being too optimistic. It looks to me like over the next foreseeable period, three years, in the case of Exhibit A, we'll kind of muddle through. And with that, Mike or Jason, anything to add there? Well, you and I haven't talked about this, but I was talking to Brian the other day, and my concerns about Social Security and Medicare are heightened after that conversation. So I don't know if you have a view on looking a little farther out on our spending requirements to keep those afloat, especially as the baby boomer generation retires. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yes. I think that the market will take care of that. And what do I mean by that? I think we have to get our GNP to grow faster and real growth probably the economists predict real growth can't be more than two percent i think that the cbo numbers when i look at the revenue numbers it looks to me i mean they have 4.8 trillion of revenue in 23 and 5 trillion in 25 it's only 200 billion of increase i think that that the economy remarkably strong We'll see the jobs number this Friday. Maybe, maybe somehow, you know, the January jobs number was what five hundred thousand of new, new new jobs. I I think that the economy is so strong that higher interest rates. All we've done with interest rates now, whether it's a ten-year rate or the Fed funds rate, has been to normalize them. I think that we will have these higher rates, kind of more normalized rates. And I think rather than getting back to 2% inflation, I think the Fed will have to learn to live with 4%. And 2% plus 4% means 6% GMP growth. And so that, you know, your revenue off that GMP growth will be you know, in 25, rather than being 5 trillion, it'll be 5.2 or 5.3. Now, to, what Brian R is worried about, as we call him here, is the long-term implications of this, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. But I think from an investment point of view, what we have to guard against is a recurrence of the fall of 08 when the capital markets just stopped because of the, the inherently flawed way we finance mortgages, residential mortgages with all those, you know, tranches where you somehow by slicing and dicing it, you have these single family mortgages pools rated AAA. They were rated AAA this month and two months later they were in default and the capital markets just came unglued. So I think one of the things we all have to worry about as investors is a recurrence but in looking at these national accounts, I don't see that as being too likely. Jason, do you think too much optimism or what do you think? I don't know if it's too much optimism. I, I'm very concerned about the, you know, the entitlement spending increasing and, and when, when does that level off? I agree we'll have to grow our GMP. And I, I feel like you know, the labor market is still really tight in the services industry and, and some of those jobs. So I, uh, being in California, I think we really have to figure out, you know, our immigration policy 
and, and bringing a lot of people into the country that typically fill those roles. Yeah. Yeah. I'd like to switch over to something that Mike and Jason, I haven't rehearsed this. I talked to Mike for 20 minutes or so every morning and he and Jason talk all, all day long, but I have an interesting way to organize a discussion of AI for the next 20 minutes, which I think would be really worthwhile to all of us as investors. And there was an article in the journal this morning about Google and how, or Alphabet, and how they probably had, Jason can explain this to us, more of the technology, but they kept sitting on it. And, and, and people left Google to start companies. And uh, there was a Google engineer in the UK who, who publicized the fact that he thought the, the, the chat program he was working on was sentient. And I don't know, I, I guess if you come up with something like that, you get fired or that, that's, that's the explanation for his uh, not, no longer working at Google. But just from a financial point of view, I'm looking at page one and there we put Tesla up against Apple and Alphabet because Elon Musk continues to say, I don't know whether he said it during the investment day, that his model for building Tesla is Apple. And, you know, to a certain extent, he's serious about that because he talks about Tesla producing 20 million cars by 2030 or some date like that. And, of course, Toyota, which is the largest, I think Toyota and Volkswagen about tied at around 10.5 million. So he's really serious about making Tesla like Apple. I mean, for example, the free cash flow in Apple on page one is $89 billion. The free cash flow in Tesla is eight. So if you're serious about making Tesla like Apple, you've got a lot of work to do in terms of getting your free cash flow up a lot higher. But in, in looking at this and, and reading the Google article, it seems to me that Google, which has been a terrific company in many, many ways, is kind of challenged because it could be that everyone in the world or 50% of everyone is going to wind up with an iPhone and different software from Google. So that's not so good. And then Microsoft embracing this open AI, you know, is, is going to, it may not, it may not help them that much with Bing, where I think their percentage share of the market is under 5%, but it may help them across the board. And it, it seems to me that Google, which may five years ago, 10 years ago, had a real lead here is, is kind of has uh, two is getting pushed from Apple in, in one area and, and Microsoft in the other. And, and with that, I mean, Jason, I, I'm introducing this subject. Jason is the expert. So I think with first, Mike and I'll turn it over to Jason and to comment on Google's position. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess I'll start with my, the, the chatbots are not sentient and, and I'm not convinced that we'll ever get there. And I, I find it fascinating that a lot of journalists that were kind of uh, poking fun at that Google engineer are now saying very similar things like uh, that, you know, the different chatbots have personalities and whatnot. Th these things are just statistical models. It's, it's, it's giving us the next set of words that we think follow the prompt that we put into it. So in no way is this an intelligence. It's just a, a, it's very clever software that we've named artificial intelligence. Um, 
I think, you know, we, we talk about impacts to Google a lot and their business model. Salesforce is, is adding a chat GPT powered product to Slack. So for those of you that, that don't know Slack, it's, it's similar to Microsoft Teams. It's a, a corporate chat product. And then this feature, with, with this feature, you'll be able to ask questions just in your normal chat conversation with your coworkers. And it, it takes away a trip out to, to Google search. So, it, you know, it's, it's just another small cut to, to Google's dominance. But I think we're going to see these things add up. Do you have an opinion on that, Mike? I, I think that Bing, for example, the Bing, new Bing or whatever they're calling it, I've been relatively disappointed with it as an actual search product. And I think we're still, try, still trying to figure out what it is that these generative AI large language models are going to be good for. What Jason's describing for Slack, I think, will make some sense. It'll have some problems, too, because... Well, Kellen and I were talking about this yesterday. Corporations aren't necessarily going to want an artificial intelligence crawling all of their corporate communications and being able to surface all of that. And how do you handle that in the case of discovery and whatnot? So I think adoption may actually be more smaller companies first and larger companies later. And there's a question of IP that's not um, not patented yet, right? So there's all sorts of like really complex pieces of, you know, why some of this will be adopted sooner or later. And I think we're just not to, we're really just not to product market fit with a lot of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll say that one use of, of chat GPT that Mike and I have experimented with, but we've never, you know, actually circulated outside of us, but uh, using it as an editor. So we'll, we'll write, emails or documents or, or that kind of thing. And we'll put it into chat GPT and prompt it to either rephrase things or just edit it. And, and you can ask it to do things like re- rephrase this paragraph in marketing lingo or, or more legal jargon, you know, and it, it's, it's, it's a personal editor, which to me is definitely worth the $20 a month that they're asking for the product. Maybe I'm talking myself into purchasing it, but <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and there's no there's no great interface to access this kind of thing now. And it, since it is all text based, having it inside of Slack makes makes a ton of sense. You know, you're you're copying pasting text into there, or just editing right in Slack. And Microsoft will have the you know they'll, they'll have the same thing with Teams and and Microsoft Word. Right. If you were Alphabet, would you try to sell this stuff on a subscription basis, or would it be? I mean. I'm looking at page one and, and Alphabet or Google has $282 million of sales and $47 million of free cash flow. Would, would you just be embarrassing yourself by taking some of the, the work that Google engineers have done and, and offering it out like OpenAI is, you know, you could subscribe to this particular product for $20 a month. It's a good question. I think the, the first distinction is, is the product that they end up selling going to be consumer facing or is it going to be a B2B product? I'm, I'm probably most excited about the fact that OpenAI and probably eventually Microsoft and others um, are going to offer access to these models through APIs. So when you're building software and at the end of the day, no matter 
you know, what product we're talking about. It's a product that creates value, and some of that value goes back to shareholders. In the case of software, it's generally developers are using APIs to build products that create value. I think that's kind of exciting, to be able to access these tools through an API. So you don't have to be, you know, a three PhD MIT Stanford grad in order to be able to understand exactly how these things work. As long as you can understand that I pass this set of arguments to this API and I'm going to get a response and I can use that response in a way that makes my users happy, that is going to be far more powerful. So what Google does, obviously Google runs Google cloud. So they have the infrastructure, they have the technical chops as far as, the ability to build these sorts of models and provide them in an API type format. I, I'm probably most excited about the B2B use case. If I'm Google, I, you know, you don't want to kill the golden goose. And, um, you know, there's there's a combination of not wanting to cannibalize your search product, but also wanting to make sure it stays relevant. So I, I think it makes sense that they're slow to move when it comes to addressing search with this sort of tool. Right. Right. And then if I'm, I think this is right. I think Google pays Apple a fair amount of money a year to have Google Maps on iOS and stuff like that. That's that's right. And uh, there is a, if you were going to put together a bear case for Apple, it would include that falling apart because that's basically 100% margin. So, yeah, I think you'd have to come up with a 10x better product for people to switch at the end of the day. And right now what we're seeing for Bing, it's not 10x better. It's different. And it has some unique features that are valuable, but it's not, to me, it's not replacing search yet. Right. I have a real treat for everyone. Certainly was a treat for myself. We're going to draw eight Jason out. You know, I've, I've always avoided owning Apple and shame on me could have been up five times or something, but with the China exposure, one of the interesting things I saw this week was an email from, I think it was from Jason, back to Brian R. and John Jeff Goshen on uh, onshoring ship foundries. And uh, basically what Jason was saying is, does, does it really make sense? Is it economic? What kind of an impact will it have on the near monopoly position that Taiwan Semiconductor has now? I don't know whether you remember that that bit of logic that you were laying out in that email, but it'd be a real treat if you could explain that to us because it runs against what all politicians across the spectrum are saying, which is we need to cut ourselves loose from China. But over to you, Jason. Yeah, Taiwan's in an interesting place in the world where it bridges China to the West and it doesn't make economic sense for us to onshore, but then, you know, our government doesn't have to make the, the most economical decision either because they've basically told TSMC that they'll, they'll pay the premium to have a U.S. made chip. And we, and we do need to secure our supply chain for these AI chips in friendly countries because, you know, they're starting to go into F-35s, for instance. And, and when you think about the next wave of defense spending, we're going to be we're going to be buying UAVs that that are unmanned, and they're going to essentially be co-pilots to the to the manned fighter jets. And there's a lot of a lot of tools like that. You know, the the intelligence community is going to be using AI products and, and all that. So we 
we can't have the supply chain really, you know, going through our biggest adversary and, and then potentially putting in hardware level bugs into it. And an example would be the, the security cameras that a lot of companies in the U S and around the world use. They're all cheaply produced in China and, and it's, it's public if, if you Google it, that a lot of these security cameras have a back door where the, the company, which is, you know, can be under direction by the CCP can access the feed. So, I mean, it, it's, it's in the news a lot with TikTok. It's the same, same sort of thing. You know, they have, they have this app with access to cameras and microphones on everyone's phone. At what point can they access that? So Jason and I wrote that email together. So the other side of that is what is necessary from a defense perspective and what is necessary from an economic perspective. It does make sense to have small-scale manufacturing of this stuff. But there's, you have to remember that the other thing you can do is you can stockpile. And it's what take the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, for example. We stockpile oil in the event that we need it in the future. And, and since that petroleum reserve has been established, the U.S. has gone from being a net importer to a net exporter and back and forth probably two or three times since 73 or so when it was put in place. The concept shouldn't be that different from a defense perspective in the semiconductors that go into F-35s. How many F-35s are you going to make? Not, not, not many. No, exactly, not <laughs> many. And you can just say, I'll buy 10x the semiconductors for each one. I mean, those things cost a billion dollars each. So why not just buy the extra semiconductors then try to, try to make everything here? Now, in a wartime situation, you would like to have at least small-scale manufacturing at pretty much every node. But, you know, some of these are it's sort of an unrealistic case, considering that even today, the plans with the U.S. fabs, we still plan to send all of the chips to China or somewhere else in Asia for OSAT, for outsourced assembly and test, because it's just infeasible to do it with our labor costs in the U.S. So I, all the politicians get really, and, and this is probably where Jason and I somewhat differ on this, but I, I think the, the politicians get really rah, rah, rah about having to protect our borders and whatnot. But at some point, a mutual interdependence and in the case of China, them being dependent on us economically and us somewhat having having some dependence on them is not necessarily bad from a global peace perspective. Right. Yep. Tell yeah. us about the test that, and, and what's involved there. Is that labor intensive? Because, in other words, the chips have to be tested and the bad ones thrown out before they get delivered somewhere. Is that what's going on? So it's, it's the test part and then assembly as well. Both of them are considered very low value, low margin, and more manual activities. So they, they end up just by that very nature being based in low-cost countries. Right. Is that something that you could do with robots? Yeah, I think a lot of it is automated already today with robots. It's just time-consuming and labor-intensive from the, the perspective of a lot of manufacturing time, not not necessarily, you know, people. Right, right. But but these factories, you just look at TSMC building their fab in in Arizona versus in Taiwan. The the costs are several factors larger to build one here. That's that's and the factory is not even as big as as the yeah. ones they built in Taiwan. Less than half capacity, yeah. and, and twice or three times the price. So right. <laughs> it doesn't exactly pencil. Yeah. Unless the you know, the government comes in and says, we're guaranteeing that we're going to take some percentage of that production capacity. 
so I, I consider it a long-term tax on Taiwan Semiconductor. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and Apple's actually promised to buy chips from Arizona as well. So it'll be interesting what, what they use those for and if that impacts their margins. Well, buy them in Arizona and ship them to Foxconn in China to make iPhones. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The other thing I updated uh, over the weekend, we only have a few minutes left, is uh, Walt Disney. This is on page four. And I guess you could say that you already see the impact of Bob Iger being back. There is free cash flow now on this look. And it is trading at 31 times free cash flow or 3% yield, which is pretty expensive. But about, about in line with Netflix. The other comparison on page four is Amazon and Amazon, you know, doesn't have free cash flow. We've talked about Amazon in the past, and they have pretty big capex, you know, $70 billion, and giving them a negative free cash flow of 17. Jason and Mike have said in the past that they think some significant amount of that capex is necessary to continue to build server farms and whatnot, and in looking at the 10K, it looks like about half of that of that capex for the server farms. But I I think while you look at this and you'd say, well, gee, I'd I'd rather own people with free cash flow like Netflix or Disney rather than Amazon. I think, and and of course, Amazon has a much bigger market cap at you know almost a trillion dollars, where Netflix is you know around 140 and Walt Disney is around 180. Now, of course, Amazon competes with them with Amazon Prime, but then Amazon has all those warehouses and planes and uh, delivery trucks and whatnot. But when you pull the Amazon financials apart, you know, they don't make that much free cash flow from all that delivery business. It's basically with Amazon Web Services and then advertising and basically you know, taking care of their Amazon Prime customers. Any comment, Mike or Jason, on how to how to think about, I mean, Amazon has already been totally beaten up in the stock market. I mean, it's, it's high just for the 52 weeks, it was 170, and it's sitting at, you know, in the 90s. But any other commentary on Amazon's position, as long as we've been covering the other big tech companies? I find it interesting that Amazon and AWS have been kind of quiet as far as AI products and, and chat products, but they're certainly, they're certainly a player in that. And we don't have enough time to talk about FTC's actions of late, but could you imagine a, an AWS as a standalone business? That's something you'd love to own. Yeah, well, there's a lot of investors pushing for that. Um, so, but I think they'll turn around their cash flow and probably be cash flow positive, if not this year, definitely next year. Right. They just won't spend so much on their logistics and their warehouses and whatnot. Right. That, that AWS CapEx is going to keep growing, but the, mm-hmm. yeah. the on the retail side, I wouldn't expect it to grow. Right. Right. While we're on things we'd like to see, Jason, who I think made the comment, would you feel the same about the chance to buy ARM as a public company or you'd rather, which one would you rather own as a public company, you know, without assuming they're both trading for 30 times free cash flow. Uh, what's the other choice besides ARM? Uh, Amazon Web Services, yeah. Oh, absolutely. 
<laughs> I, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I think arms misplayed their hand lately, especially with how they've treated Qualcomm. That's their largest customer and they've, they've really, they're attacking them. And, and I mean, if you're a chip designer at, and looking at long-term what, what you're going to use, I, there's a lot of momentum going for risk five. And I think that's the way you're going to look. That's certainly the way Google's looking lately, you know, and you're, you're not going to want to have to pay licensing revenue to arm. Right. 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 Good. Well, we're, we've run through our time for next weekend. As I say, I'm going to try to sharpen up some of this revenues and expenses of the U.S. government. I think the main problem, I, I, I just, the GMP numbers don't make sense to me. So I'll try to do some, some get some better sources on that. The other thing I'm going to do is focus on the page 9, 10, 11, and 12, which are the energy companies, because I believe we can get final financials for all those companies. In addition, I have a pretty good, or I should say it because it's my work product, I, I should I should refer to. I have a four-page uh, analysis of the gas market in the U.S., which I put a fair amount of time in, and it kept for, oh, three or four or five years. And um, that that may be available on the Topmark uh, website. I'm, I'm going to try to boil that down to one page, which would be Exhibit A, Exhibit B. So Exhibit A would be the revenue and expenses for the U.S. government. Exhibit B would be boiling this four-page memo down to one page, which I think could be done in time. And this will take more time. Try to do an Exhibit C, which will be supply-demand on a worldwide basis for oil, because natural gas, the price of onshore natural gas up in Pennsylvania is impacted by what LNG is trading for in Japan or Europe, but but not not a lot. There's not a high correlation where oil really is correlated. And the problem with doing that kind of analysis for oil is there's at least three good sources. OPEC economists do work the IEA, which was set up as a, a group of consuming countries, does some good work. And our own EIA does some good work. And when you put them down beside each other, it's hard to reconcile. The, to, you know, but I, I will sometime in the next few weeks, hopefully. I, I think this week I'll have an Exhibit B, but I hope to do an Exhibit C within the next few weeks. And with that, everyone stay well and be healthy. And we'll talk next Wednesday. Take care. The views expressed on this podcast are the host alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, Neither the hosts nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information, and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned.